Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the 12th episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial markets could be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. This week, we're launching a four-part mini-series on ESG, environmental, socially responsible, and governance-focused investing. We'll kick the series off with Peter Fusaro, veteran ESG investor and founder of the Wall Street Green Summit. In this week's interview with Peter, we'll discuss various aspects of ESG investing, its history, and where it's headed. Then in coming weeks, we'll bring more ESG experts to the table. My interview with Wall Street Green Summit founder, Peter Fusaro, is coming up next. And now, with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Peter, thanks so much for joining us on Smarter Markets. You have been personally investing in all things green and sustainable literally for decades before it became fashionable. Tell us a little bit about how you first got involved in this and why. Well, I've been involved in green before it became fashionable, frankly, from Earth Day 1970 with my solar-powered T-shirt in Pittsburgh when I was a student at Carnegie Mellon. I've been very dedicated to this sector for a long time. I was a policymaker in Washington, D.C. at the Federal Energy Administration, which became the Department of Energy. And I was tasked with getting the lead out of gasoline when we use lead as a octane enhancer for gasoline in 1976 when I worked with EPA. And uh, frankly, the energy industry is extremely resilient and engineers solve problems. And we got let out of gasoline with absolutely no gasoline shortages. Worked on that, also worked on uh, co-writing an environmental impact statement on liquefied natural gas LNG, as it's called today, safety and siding on Point Conception, California. I'm a native New Yorker and worked on the first energy efficiency programs in New York City with the two utilities, Con Edison and Brooklyn Union Gas, ran focus groups in Brooklyn on energy efficiency. Frankly, uh, we did bill stuffers and getting folks interested in new technologies, kind of a hard sell when people just pay bills. I've done a lot of work in energy and environment. I worked on the Prius with Toyota in the late 90s. I've been very involved since then on electric vehicles and fuel cell vehicles. And for the last 20 years, I've been more engaged on what I call the financial energy industry. I've run a venture capital fund in clean energy. I've worked with hedge funds on portfolio construction. And for the past 10 years, been much more engaged in private equity, scaling and commercializing technology of clean energy companies. And the game today is to move them forward. Uh, It's nice to have a good idea, but it's much better to commercialize and scale. Now, Peter, despite the fact that you have literally for 50 years been involved and focused your career in things that are green and sustainable, I'm going to share my opinion, which is I think in the grand scheme of things with respect to the investment industry, I think we're just getting started in terms of the adoption of ESG and green and sustainable mandates in investing. My first question is, would you agree with that? But probably more importantly, as an expert in this field, how would you describe where we stand today? Is this the first inning? Is this the pregame? Is this the seventh inning? How far into the ESG revolution are we right now? I'm a big baseball fan. I still think we're in the top of the first inning. However, I also think we're about to look at a decade of sustainability writ large in energy, food, and agriculture. The world's largest businesses are going to change. I could also make an argument that COVID is going to accelerate these changes. We've seen in the last nine, 10 months of movement to folks looking at uh, 
screens, AI, machine learning. I think a lot of change is coming, but I do agree with you. This is the beginning of a sea change. As in, in the energy patch, we call it the energy transition, the movement of big energy into clean and green. Right now, only three major energy companies, Total in France, Equinor, formerly Statoil in Norway, and Shell in the Netherlands are moving into clean and green energy. Most others are still laggards. So we're just in the beginning of this. On top of that, I see a lot of smaller startups, new stage companies, new technology companies that will be acquired by the larger companies, the basically strategic investing. So this is just starting, and I see a sea change occurring in this space over the next 10 years. Give us a perspective on what the important governmental initiatives are that we need to understand. Uh, we, we hear buzzwords like Kyoto Protocol and Paris Accord. What are the important things that we need to understand that have already been established in terms of standards and directions for sustainability? Well, it's, it's important to have a good policy signal that this is something that needs to be done. But I actually think we don't need much more than that. A lot of the private sector is moving forward on this, irregardless of the government. You're talking to a former bureaucrat, a policymaker. It's nice to have a friendly regime in Washington, D.C. or wherever. But frankly, this train has already left the station. The reality is we're not going to see a global emissions trading regime for carbon. It would have been nice if we had that, but it's not necessary. It's frankly not going to happen. We've looked at this uh, about 15 years ago. It didn't happen in the U.S. It's happening. It's not happening globally. So really where we really want to see this movement is uh, frankly in research and development. The government has a number of labs that do do basic research, and that's where they're very good at basic science and material science, chemical engineering, those type of bigger projects that take a longer time to gestate. We really need a, a better pathway to commercialization. And that doesn't mean loan guarantee programs. We really have enough dry powder in the private sector to move the needle. There's a number of investors that are interested in this sector today on ESG and impact sustainability that can move forward without even government mandates. I, I don't see the need for a, a lot of wherewithal from government today. I actually see a lot of movement to move capital forward from the private sector. And some of that, frankly, is knowledge capital. I was an adjunct professor at Columbia University teaching renewable energy project finance to second year grad students. I've spent 25 years mentoring young people on sustainability in capital formation, capital markets. You need the horses, so to speak. You need the intellectual knowledge to move forward on this. You can't do this in a vacuum. And a lot of those folks have found their jobs in the private sector. This morning, I was talking to a young woman I've been mentoring for the last year and a half. She works at a New York-based bank in sustainability. Her boyfriend's at Goldman. The reality is a lot of the young people have a certain dimension of passion in this space that you can't pay for. So I'm actually quite optimistic about this sector moving faster than people realize due to the twin dynamic of making money, doing the right thing, as we say in New York, but also an extra dimension of folks wanting to really leave a mark on, the, on a better world doing things that have an impact. Well, I couldn't agree with you more that this is about making money doing the right thing because there are so many opportunities in this emerging world of ESG to do the right thing. We, we had Robert Friedland talking about the need to start grading and trading commodities based on how responsibly they're produced, which you know potentially means more income for commodity producers who are responsible, and it, and it means we can create smarter markets to facilitate that. So I'm totally with you on the private sector focus of this. One thing 
something you said surprised me, though. When we had Jeff Curry on this podcast, he told us the most important thing we got to figure out is how to put a price on carbon so that we can trade it, and particularly so that as we trade energy contracts, we can attach carbon credits to them in order to offset them. It sounded like a minute ago you said we're not ever going to get to the point of being able to efficiently trade carbon credits. Is that right? Did I, did I misunderstand you or, or help me understand? Well, he- here's the problem. And I've taught over a thousand people on carbon trading and finance around the world. I've traded them in Geneva at the Swiss Finance Institute. I taught them in Tokyo at the Mitsubishi Research Institute. Here's the problem. There are 61 carbon markets globally. 31 today are following something called emissions trading schemes and 30 of them are following carbon taxes. That's a prescription for dysfunction. That is not a way to move forward on a pricing mechanism for carbon. Markets like simplicity for replication of trade. We don't have that. Today, we basically have two seminal markets for carbon trading. One in the EU, which has the whole European Union involved, And that today has a pricing of about 32 euro. I checked that on my screen. California is the second largest market at at basically $18.50 a metric ton. And those are your two real markets. We have a number of carbon taxes, and they're all over the place. British Columbia has $30 a ton. The UK, $25 a ton. Australia, $23 a ton. France, 44.60 euro a ton. So that is not something that you can stitch together. If you have all these different mechanisms that are unlinked, that doesn't really work very well. Now, if you go to the Paris Accord, which everybody talks about, and it seems that the Biden administration will rejoin very shortly, There's no binding enforcement mechanism. There may be some linking mechanism with some of these emissions trading schemes I've mentioned. There's no pricing mechanism. So in my opinion, you have an aspirational goal, which is two degrees Celsius. That's a goal to keep the temperature rise below two degrees Celsius. But that does not make a market. And so we have a number of different markets. Now, if you move to China, which is the largest greenhouse gas emitter on the planet at 9.3 gigatons, 28% of greenhouse gases globally, and they have seven emissions markets they've been piloting. And I was very involved in a capstone project at Columbia where we actually looked at all these markets They still have not launched a market for the country, and they are burning about 70% coal burn. So they still have not gotten to how we're going to see China move forward as an emissions trading market, and they're going to follow an emissions trading scheme in that country. So what I'm getting at, if you have all these diverse markets that are not linked, how do you actually have a pricing mechanism for carbon? That's a problem. It sounds like a huge problem. So if we allow governments to be in charge of all of this, what you get is these individual jurisdictions where they've got their own carbon trading within their jurisdiction. It's not fungible. Those carbon credits are not tradable in other markets, and you don't really have any global carbon market. How do we invoke your doctrine of making money doing the right thing and get the private sector involved in solving that problem? And it sounds like what we need is a fungible global carbon trading platform that somehow spans all of these different geographies and and overcomes this problem that governments have created by focusing only on their own jurisdictions. Well, that was attempted under the Kyoto Protocol, which began in 1998. And that didn't quite work out the way we all expected. So I, I don't see it going back to Kyoto And right now, there's a registry. There's been about 14,500 projects approved, looking at about 4 billion tons of offsets. Uh, Right now, the global carbon footprint per year, right now it's about 38 billion metric tons. Just to put some perspective on this, when you combust fossil energy, you emit carbon for 100 years. So each year, we're emitting a large number 
of carbon emissions that stay in the stratosphere for 100 years. So this year, it'll probably be a better economic year than last year. So last year, global emissions, we don't have the number yet, was probably down a little bit from the 38 billion metric tons I mentioned. That was 019. So the reality is you have this number of emissions and most of the offsets have started to move toward tree planting. It's called RED, which is tree planting, forestry offsets. 41% of offsets for the last five years have been involved with trees. That's a good idea. It's not going to solve all your problems. So it's called RED plus reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. So that is where we're probably going to see a lot more activity. For example, air carriers can't really do much in reducing emissions. I briefed the U.S. air carriers a number of years ago. They have uh, 40-year cycles for design. They can use composite materials. They got a bump of 25% in fuel economy. But in reality, they're now allowing offsets with forestry. They've allowed that on on November 20th of last year. So you're going to see a lot more movement into forestry offsets. It's not a bad thing. It's probably the only way forward because reality is what other way can you reduce carbon footprint of major polluting industries in fossil fuels? So you're going to see a lot more forestry offsets. Now, these forestry offsets are real. It's not greenwashing. They are verified, certified, monitored by third-party verification agencies such as DNV, SGS. They are run by forestry funds like New Forest out of Sydney, Australia. So this is a growth area, no pun intended. So I think you're going to see a lot more forestry offsets in the making, and you can start moving that area into futures contracts, as uh, Jeff Curry was talking about. That may be the way forward for many of the uh, fossil fuel contracts. It seems to me that a big difference we have from now versus 20, 25 years ago is it was assumed back then that this had to be government mandated because compliance with laws was the only way you were going to get anybody to act responsibly. The notion that people would want to choose to pay more for something if they can be assured that that something was produced in a environmentally conscious and responsible way. We didn't really think that was a possibility, at least as far as I know, uh, that was not really considered viable 25 years ago. Now it works. There's lots of examples of people voluntarily purchasing carbon credits to offset the impact of the flight that they took on their vacation. Um, Is that an important trend? And if so, what does it change? That is an important trend, but that's a totally different market. That's the voluntary carbon market. That is something you can elect to do. For example, I was a member of the Chicago Climate Exchange. I bought carbon credits for a landfill and other agricultural products in Illinois. I know they were certified because I bought them through a broker. I've actually offset my carbon footprint for 40 years. But that was a voluntary thing that I elected to do as a member of an exchange, which no longer exists, by the way. The point being, so folks can do that. They can do that through a number of different platforms that offer these voluntary credits that are verified. But that that's small potatoes. That's, that's not what we're talking about in terms of really doing a major, how to say it nicely, beneficial impact on reducing the 38 gigatons of, or, of uh, carbon emissions each year. It's just a big number. This is the law of big numbers. This is not small. This is very big. So yes, you can elect to do that on a voluntary basis. But uh, let, me, let me just give you a basis of comparison. Market-based solutions for pollution have worked in the past. They work for acid rain where we had a problem in the Northeast under the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990. People have to understand this is rule of law. So I'm going to give you a compliance-based market. 1990, we had the Clean Air Act amendments under Bush administration one, the Environmental Defense Fund, a gentleman named Lou Ranieri used something called mortgage-backed securities 
securitized emissions. These went forward as an auction with the EPA and the Chicago Board of Trade. They set up a pricing mechanism. This cleaned up acid rain in the Northeast, which killed fish, acidified lakes. That problem is no longer here. It's gone. It was done. And that was a long-term program that actually ends in 2030, but it was, it was ameliorated by trading. Similarly, we had an urban ozone program in the late 90s called SMOG. We had 180 ozone non-attainment days in LA, brown crowd in Denver, same thing. These came from tailpipe emissions from cars. Volatile organic compounds, nitrous oxides came out of combustion of gasoline. Similarly, trading mechanism, trading work, ameliorated a problem. That idea was proposed by the U.S. delegation for the Kyoto Protocol using emissions trading. It gestated out of the capital markets in New York City, solved two environmental problems, and that is the genesis of all this emissions trade. It came out of New York, and it didn't work. And it should have worked, but it didn't work. And so now we've got a bigger problem of 61 markets for carbon. I don't know how to solve this problem. I'll be very honest with you. I think the offset market may be the silver lining here because we can plant trees. I want to come back to the compliance versus voluntary issue, because on one hand, I see what you're saying. It sounds like the voluntary purchase of carbon credits and so forth. It's a nice gesture, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not big enough to make a meaningful difference. What I do see, or what it feels to me like has changed completely, is 25 or 30 years ago, you wouldn't have investors saying, look, I really want to invest my capital by making money doing something that's good. I, I want to invest in ESG and I want my investment manager to be accountable, not only in the sense of what the returns are that he's producing, but I want that investment manager to show me that they're actually making a difference in the world. I don't think we had that voluntary participation of capital owners really taking a, a strong position of, I want to use my capital responsibly, anything close to the way that we're starting to see it now. You've got the perspective, Peter, in terms of where we've been. If that capital that's coming to bear needs to be put to work, first of all, do you agree that, that there's a lot more voluntary capital available? And more importantly, what are the most important places to put it to work? I totally agree. There's a lot more voluntary capital available. And I can also make the argument that I think ESG is the new cap and trade. I believe that this is the way forward, that investors are going to drive this train on ESG, that because we're not going to have the cap and trade market that I envisioned and worked on for 30 years, that we are going to see this de facto that investors are going to do their own screens and invest in those technology companies and those corporates and those fund managers that are following the ESG pathway. So I think they're, they're self-selecting in effect. What are the best opportunities to make money doing the right thing? If, if you're advising those ESG funds on where to put their capital, where are the opportunities that maybe some of them aren't aware of? Well, here, here's the other problem I see. I'm seeing too many numbers thrown around, $30 trillion in ESG, $17 trillion in ESG. I, I don't believe any of those numbers. I did a, a, a small scoping exercise. I think it's about $100 billion in ESG right now in funds. There may be $500 billion in all ESG right now in impact. I, I think that people are throwing around numbers. I, I think this is the beginning of a market. I think that the numbers are being inflated way out of proportion to what's real. I think people are trying to rebrand themselves as ESG or impact, and I don't think that's true. So I think uh, as, as we began in the beginning of this interview, we're at the beginning of a market. How can we possibly be that big at the beginning of a market? We're, we're small. And, I, and I've seen these numbers floated around and too much in the, in the financial press. It doesn't make any sense to me. So I think right now we have a small amount of ESG and impact funds, a small amount of companies that are really there in terms of metrics. Frankly, 
on public companies, you've got no standardization. You have a number of vendors peddling product with absolutely no consistency in uh, how they're aligning themselves on measurement. And then on the private side, you barely have, which is 90% of the market, you barely have any kind of coherency. There are a couple of software vendors that are starting to put out some kind of uh, of screening, but it's just the beginning. So I, I think we're, we're barely there in terms of how do you evaluate ESG for, for fund managers, for example, or private equity funds. You know, these, this is like an untapped market. This is something you could, it's actually a good business opportunity. So I, I think we're just beginning on all of this. I want to come back to something that you said about people rebranding themselves, because I agree with you. I think that we are very, very early in this story. And frankly, I think we're in the infancy of what, in my opinion, is still a very immature ESG market, because I do think you've got these guys that uh, as much as someone like yourself has been involved in sustainable investing for 50 years, you know, these Wall Street guys, they, they tend to reinvent themselves around whatever's hot. And right now, ESG is hot. So all of a sudden, you know, the guy shows up, he's driving a, a Tesla or a Prius or whatever, and it's got a Sierra Club bumper sticker on the bumper. And, you know, he's, he's Mr. Sustainability. Last week, he was, you know, investing in, in who knows what else. Um, these guys that are reinventing themselves and running ESG funds that invest in Apple, uh, it doesn't seem to me like investing in Apple so that there's even more capital available to, to design the next iPad. And yeah, okay, Apple's a responsible company that's got some solar panels on the roof. Good for them. That, to me, is not changing the world and making the world a better place. What are the kinds of investments that really do make the world a better place? And what do we need to do to get beyond Wall Street guys reinventing themselves to people that are actually engaged in really making a difference and making the world a better place and making a buck doing the right thing? Well, the holy grail for renewables is obviously energy storage. So that's one area that we're starting to see a major breakthrough in bending the cost curve for battery storage. So that's one area that I think is going to bring forth a lot more deployment of renewables. We've gotten the cost of solar and wind down 90% for solar, 40, 50% for wind. One area which I'm very engaged in is hydrogen. Hydrogen, everybody keeps saying it's 10 years out there. No, it's not. Hydrogen has H2O, water vapor, as its emission. There's a lot of science in the hydrogen, emerging hydrogen economy. There's something called the Hydrogen Council in Paris with 90 corporates on board. Hydrogen is very doable. EVs still are using fossil energy. So there's a lot of activity on the hydrogen front. And that is something that investors not, are hardly even looking at. So that's where we need to go if we really want to start making a dent in greenhouse gas emissions. And frankly, it's just starting to get some traction but that's where we need to be. So I'm not so worried about solar and wind power. The, the, the blades are getting bigger and they're starting to basically repurpose them. And, you know, basically you go to one and you go and you repower with larger wind turbines on the same site. Solar collectors are, are, are getting double-sided, more energy dense. The, the, the technology is, is moving faster. It's almost Moore's law. Cost drops gets more efficient. That's not even an issue. And global deployment. It's really the storage issue is where the focus of the science and technology and commercialization. That's one side. And then the hydrogen the emerging hydrogen economy, not so much in fuel cell vehicles. There's only about 70 refueling stations globally. That's too small to make a dent. But on fleets, on delivery trucks, on buses, uh, there's hydrogen trains now in Germany and France. There's hydrogen ships in Norway and Japan. This is something to watch because it's emerging. And it, as I mentioned, the emissions are nothing, water vapor. And that's something that could come faster than people realize. And it's you talk to people and they talk about fuel cells, been around 150 years. But I think that's something that investors should start looking at very seriously. 
Tell me more about how you see this hydrogen economy coming together, because, of course, there are no hydrogen wells, there's no hydrogen mines. You've got to produce the hydrogen by consuming some other form of energy. So unless it's nuclear energy that's, that's being used to produce the hydrogen for the hydrogen fuel cells, you're still burning a fossil fuel somewhere in order to produce the hydrogen. So No, not necessarily. You can marry them to solar and wind farms. You're, you basically need the power to split the H2O. That's all you need. Okay, so you're saying that you produce the hydrogen, you, you use wind and solar energy generation in order to produce hydrogen. So rather than producing electricity, which has to be stored in a battery, you're instead producing hydrogen, which can be used as a liquid fuel or, or used to fuel vehicles. Yes. Well, you make two things. You make, the, you make power or the, or the liquid. It used to be called solar hydrogen. I haven't seen that term in 30 years, by the way, but it's starting to happen. And you're, starting, you're going to start seeing the marriage of these, of these sites. You mentioned earlier that you're getting more involved with private equity and investments in technology companies. Are the areas that we've talked about the primary areas that you see investment in, in terms of the battery technologies and, and hydrogen and so forth? Or are there other technologies that we should think about? Well, one thing I, I am in, have been involved in is uh, sort of the regenerative economy is another area which I'm looking at. I haven't found a vertical farm that actually works yet. So I've worked with one in Brooklyn uh, about a year and a half ago. Making green leafy vegetables isn't the way forward. We, we need to figure out a better metric. But th there's a lot of stress on topsoil. My, my wife's from Iowa. They're down to about four inches of what they used to call the black dirt. And globally, we're, we're really depleting our, our soil all over the planet. So we have a real problem on agriculture, both on land and sea. We're depleting fisheries as well. And there's a global need for protein. So there is some real interest that I have on uh, sustainable farming and sustainable fishing, even land-based fish farms I'm looking at. So there's, uh, you know, there's issues on lice and, uh, and food production. I think there's a real stressor as the planet goes to 9 billion people. We're going to really put a lot more pressure on how we grow agricultural products. So that's one area. And I haven't found a vertical farm I really like. And I've looked at a lot of the technology involved, and the LED lamps and the computer AI generation. And, in, and so right now I haven't, I've seen a, burn a lot of capital, but I haven't, I haven't seen uh, one that works very well yet. This is not my area of expertise, Peter, but I remember reading a few years ago that a lot of people thought offshore wind was going to be a huge area of growth as the technology got better, because, of course, open oceans are the place where the most wind exists, that you don't have the trees and, and foliage and so forth to, to slow the wind down. Is that practical these days? Of course, the challenge was getting the electricity that's generated into a form that can be transported from an offshore wind farm. How is that going? Is that still an, a hot area of investment? It's actually a hotter area of investment. Here in New York, we're building 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind. They've just uh, let the second contract to Equinor and BP in New York. So we're, so we're doing a lot of offshore Long Island wind. Uh, I believe New Jersey has one, Massachusetts. We're going to see the Northeast, Middle Atlantic states have a lot of offshore wind. Equinor, formerly Statoil, the Norwegian oil and gas company, is basically using their offshore oil and gas technology and putting out $50 billion in offshore wind between now and 2024. So it's actually a ripe area of growth globally because you can just use the tech offshore not really interfering with anything. And plus, here's the interesting irony, the structures are very attractive for uh, fish. They like to live around those areas. So you're seeing a lot of deployment. Initially, the North Sea was the hot area for offshore wind, but now it's being deployed in Taiwan, New York, and many other areas of the world. Now, how does that actually work? Do you need undersea electric transmission cables to get the energy out of it, or does the energy get used to produce hydrogen or something else on site? No, no. They, right now, we're using traditional undersea cables. Down the road, we'll, we'll probably produce some hydrogen. There's also something called induction wind that Siemens uses that doesn't need a gearbox. So there's better technology. I haven't seen that in the U.S. yet, but induction wind, no gearbox, less moving parts, 
So there's uh, there's what's happening is the technology in, in solar and wind just keeps getting better. And so we'll have less O&M operations and maintenance and better technology, more efficient technology, and uh, they'll be more long-lived. Peter, talking to you is like an encyclopedia for these subjects. Let's imagine that some of the people in our audience are those fund managers who are maybe reinventing themselves around ESG and really need to come up to speed on these things that you've been studying for 50 years. Are there any particular either industry conferences or other resources that you would recommend for investment professionals who need to really get up to speed at a professional level on learning about all of these different industries and where the best investments are if your goal is to do the right thing for the world and make a buck in the process? Well, I'm very self-serving. My 20th anniversary Wall Street Green Summit is coming up on last week in April, April 26 to 30. We are covering, we have 60 speakers, many of these topics, all from professionals, practitioners, no government bureaucrats, everybody that's working in agriculture, in uh, energy, and also in sustainable mining, one area I had a call last Friday that I'm getting very attracted to is this whole area of sustainable mining. Uh, you actually turned me on to that with Robert Friedland's talk. I'm uh, very interested. There's a, a whole host of new initiatives out of Canada on uh, smarter mining for the critical materials alliance just launched last, the Canadian Critical Materials Alliance just launched last uh, Thursday. So not to be too self-serving, but the Wall Street Green Summit, the oldest sustainable finance event in North America will be the end of April. So just Google wallstreetgreensummit.com. Let's come back to Robert Friedland and the interview that he gave us on Smarter Markets. Robert says if you want to incentivize the people who do the most damage to the environment, which is in many cases the extractive industries like mining, what you do is you give them a way to be rewarded for doing the right thing. And his vision is grading and trading commodities based on how responsibly they were produced. So he's saying, send an auditor in to keep an eye on me, make sure that I'm being responsible in not exploiting child labor and not leaving an environmental mess behind when I produce my copper, and then give me the ability to sell certified green copper on the open market and allow efficient free market price discovery to determine what premium the market is willing to pay for that responsibly produced copper. What do you think of, you said earlier, you thought that some of the voluntary compliance things weren't really working. That's a different flavor, though, if we're talking about something like a carbon credit for an airline flight, then let's say enabling the person who's buying their electric vehicle to say, look, I want the copper in my new Tesla to be 100% green copper that was produced with no child labor and no, no environmental backing and so forth. And that means somebody's got to be willing to pay for that. Does that make sense? Or do we need to depend on government mandate in order to accomplish these objectives? The question is, how are they going to label that? <laughs> so I, th I think something there's going to have to be some kind of standards board for that because I don't I don't see how that's going to move. There is something called the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, but I don't even think they're considering that yet. I, I think he's on to the absolute right thing. I, I think the two largest, and as you mentioned, extractive industries are energy and mining, and there's the ones that need to be transformed. I, I don't know how to build that bridge yet. I've spent my whole career trying to transform one industry. He's working on the other one. But these are the ones that need to be really attacked. Well, it seems to me that this is really a critical issue for ESG as a trend, because as you said, the, the extractive industries, you know, like energy and mining, that's where most of the damage is done to the environment. It seems to me that ESG done right ought to involve investing and making those things better. You know, look at where the biggest problem is created and let's figure out how to fix it. But it seems to me a lot of what I've seen of ESG is an avoidance ESG. It's like what we're going to do is have a fund that never invests in energy and never invests in mining. And that's the way we're going to be ESG. We're only going to buy companies like Apple that have solar panels on the roof. I don't think that really does much to make the world a better place in terms of cleaning up mining and cleaning up the energy business. What other things should we be doing in order to get this ESG trend focused on actually doing good in the world, not just avoiding bad? Well, you've hit the nail on the head. 
And I don't know how to clone myself because exactly that is what I did. I went out to every dirty energy conference in Asia since 93 and talked about doing the right thing and being green in a dirty industry. And that's how you attack the problem. But a lot of people didn't want to do that. So I, I agree with you. I don't know the way to do it if you're just divesting fossil fuel companies from your portfolio. That doesn't make them better. So I don't know the answer to that question. What I did see, though, when and I'm going back a long ways, when I did see the industry take the lead out of gasoline and then do something called fuel reformulation. And I was in Arco's office in LA in, in 1988 when they wanted to show me how they did something called EC1, where they were cleaning up their gasoline. Industry can change how it does its practices. It's full of engineers that solve problems. And I think people are not getting that message. I think the industry does a very poor job of messaging itself, by the way, which is not helpful. If it was more proactive, it should message, we can do this. Now, BP tried Beyond Petroleum, which was a failure. It's a market failure, as you probably remember. But there are better ways to get the messaging out to investors, though. Well, let's brainstorm this a little bit more because it seems to me that where we are now in the ESG story, we're starting to get a little bit of standardization around things like ESG scores on companies. So if you're going to invest in a stock, you, you can, you know, somebody has, has given it an ESG grade that you can look up if you're so inclined. It seems to me, though, that that still is missing the point because exactly what you just said, we need to figure out how to clone you, Peter. Uh, I guess we could go a biotech approach and actually clone you, but that would still take 25 years for, for the Peter clones to be of age to, to start being <laughs> investors. So let's talk about other ways to achieve the same thing. It seems to me that we need a system of grading ESG investment funds which is not saying, did you go and avoid all of the problem areas with avoidance ESG, which is where I think most of the ESG market is today, but rather we're going to give you a grade on whether or not you actually did a good job of going and engaging in the most destructive and the most problematic industries and figured out how to invest in a way that made them better. Is there a way that we could have some standards or some metrics for measuring investment managers and investment funds to really grade them on whether they're doing avoidance ESG or make the world a better place ESG? Well, I've tried talking to SASB about this, but they're, I'll be very blunt, they've just kind of handed it off to some consultants. <laughs> I won't mention the names of who the consultants are, but to the usual suspects. The thinking isn't there yet, and it should be, because I totally agree with you that they need to think differently about how they're doing this, because otherwise you're just doing the scorecard type of you know, checklist. That's not the way to do this. They, they need a different way of thinking. Taking the, the ESG investors' money, the, the, the responsible capital owners, the people who want to do good in the world, and simply taking their money and avoiding all the areas that require the most attention. That does not make the world a better place. You've got to engage, as you said, exactly what you've been doing for your whole career. You've got to engage in the industries that cause the most problems and figure out how to clean those industries up in a way which results in profitability and, and you know makes a buck in the process of doing it. You've been doing this for your whole career, Peter. Why do you think it is that so many of these ESG funds are taking more of an avoidance approach rather than an engagement approach? Is it just because they don't know what to do? or I mean, is it a matter of, of needing education? Or are they taking the easy way out? What's going on here? They really don't understand the industry. They, they don't. And, and they they are taking the easy way out because it's much harder to understand human behavior and how people react to change. And you, you can't be threatening. Many years ago, I used to scare people and I figured that doesn't work. You, you need to have, you know, I'm not going to say it's consensus building, but you've got to look for common ground. That's one thing I have learned. If you look for common ground, you will get buy-in. You don't have to scare people. And I think that's, that's one method you could be much more effective. Peter, let's tie this together now. You've said that there are a number of different technology areas 
where there's plenty of opportunity. I think you and I are in violent agreement that a problem that we face is that a lot of the ESG funds are really in avoidance ESG mode. They're avoiding the areas where attention needs to be paid as opposed to going in and making a difference there. I know a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast are investment professionals who probably have aspirations about doing the kinds of things that you do, about focusing. As you said, a lot of the the people in younger generations particularly are just passionate about wanting to focus their careers on doing something good for the world and making a buck along the way. Let's talk now to that audience. How far into this story of ESG are we? How much opportunity is there? And what is your advice to investment professionals who want to focus on their career? And they don't want to be the avoidance ESG guys. They want to actually make a difference. How do they engage? What do they do? And where are the opportunities for career advancement in this part of the investment industry? Okay, I'm just going to speak about the clean energy industry. The clean energy industry right now is $362 billion, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance. That is 5% of the $6 trillion energy industry. So if you can see the opportunity as a business transformation, even going to a trillion dollars of basically tripling that. So right now, we're looking at a crossroads where we have to rebuild, and that's what COVID is looking at, a rebuild of America and the world into a much more sustainable society. So what we need to look at is an opportunity to rebuild society in a much more sustainable way with capital and technology. The technology is already developed and is developing. There are many incubators, accelerators that already exist, not just in the U.S., throughout the world. I'm I'm part of something called Columbia Tech Ventures. Columbia University basically runs a number of incubators throughout New York State where we mentor young companies. So one area to look at is a lot of the startups that are starting to scale and commercialize. That's one area for young people to start looking at. And these are mostly companies in the ESG impact space. Secondly, banks need young talent. Fund managers definitely need better talent. And I'm starting to see investors much more interested and engaged in this sector. It was very interesting. I was looking at a main greenhouse project using Dutch technology And the principals said, oh, he's not an impact investor. And I'm saying, yeah, but they're using technology to build a greenhouse in Maine, employing local people and growing vegetables. Uh, I think that adds up to impact investing ESG. So don't get stuck and pigeonholed because something doesn't check the boxes correctly. Look more holistically about how the outcome looks. That's my two cents. Peter, as you were talking, I couldn't help but wonder, in the family office space, it seems to me like what we really need to get this ESG trend on the right track is to have some of those younger people that are more savvy and more knowledgeable about the technology and the trends Working for family offices saying, Mr. Fund Manager, my family office doesn't want to invest in feel-good ESG where you just tell us that you're investing in Apple. We want to see how you're engaging in the most destructive industries to make them better. Are you seeing that in the family office uh, and, and private wealth management space? Because it seems to me it's the owners of capital who have the most power. If I was trying to think about, if I were a young person starting out in this industry and I wanted to have the most influence, I'd want to work for a big family office with lots of money who can say, I don't want feel-good ESG uh, from the fund manager who drives a Tesla with a, with a Sierra Club bumper sticker on the back bumper. I, I want to see somebody who can actually tell me that you're employing the right technologies to make a difference clean up destructive industries and make them better. Is that a right way to think about where some of the opportunities are? And what are you seeing in terms of the family office landscape right now? The family office people 
are the first movers. They are definitely the ones that are willing to take the risk, who are the ones involved in ESG, who are the next generation. They're the ones that I see moving forward. And we do engage quite a bit with family office people. And finally, Peter, you have been running the Wall Street Green Investing Summit for I've forgotten how many years. Please refresh us on how many years that's been. I know you mentioned it earlier in the interview, but please give us the website for our listeners who are interested in attending this year. This is the 20th anniversary Wall Street Green Summit, which is the oldest sustainable finance event in North America. It's at the end of April this year, and the URL is www.wallstreetgreensummit.com. Please attend. Thank you. And is that a live attendance event in New York City, or is it virtual, given the COVID situation? Well, we'll have COVID this year, so it is totally virtual. It is global, and it's on Zoom. Fantastic. So it doesn't matter where you are. You can attend from anywhere. And again, that's wallstreetgreensummit.com. Peter, thanks again for a terrific interview. This week's interview was the first of a multi-week mini-series on ESG. My guest next week will be Tom Raftery, Chief Innovation Officer for SAP and an outspoken proponent of green energy. We'll discuss the green energy revolution, where it's headed, and what it means for financial markets. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests of the caliber you've heard here on Smarter Markets. And we have a veritable who's who of industry legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via word of mouth. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.